Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning, Antioch. It's Jer here, and as always, I'm humbled to be able to spend some time together with you. I want to begin this morning with what appears to be evident. We as a people, as a country, are dangerously divided. We stand divided by faith, politics, race, economics, sexual orientation, and social location. According to the data, our ability to navigate hard conversations and prioritize relationships specifically with those with whom we disagree has degenerated over the past 20 years. The stats suggest that the pace at which the divides between us are widening has accelerated significantly since 2016. Words like animosity, cynicism, othering, dehumanizing, demonizing have become standard descriptors of how we tend to approach those with whom we disagree. As I listened in on the political commentary during election week, the word divided seemed to be one of the most frequently used terms. And while my life's work as a peacemaker has me paying close attention to the growing divides in our churches, cities, states, and country, I'm especially burdened in this season by the interpersonal relationships that we've allowed to become interrupted. I've heard daughters say to their mothers of a different political disposition, you are no longer my mother. I've heard friends say to lifelong friends of another political persuasion, I can no longer allow our kids to grow up together. I've heard neighbors say of other neighbors, I don't feel safe around them anymore because of who they voted for. I've heard colleagues question the integrity of previously cherished colleagues because of their political preferences. I've heard spouses question the longevity of their marriages because of the political rift with their partners. I've heard church members question the character of their pastors because of their discussing or remaining silent on issues of nationalism, partisan allegiance, and white supremacy. I imagine that you, like me, can call up conversations that we've all had with family, friends, neighbors, and colleagues, maybe even fellow Antiochers, where we've walked away from the conversation disqualifying the other person from a deepening relationship with us. Sadly, when we disqualify one another from relationship, the divide between us doesn't remain static. It widens. Here's how. Let's say that you and I have a conversation where we discover that we're not aligned politically or theologically. Rather than listening and seeking to understand in order to find some common ground, our inertia in this moment is toward distancing and dehumanizing. The dehumanization typically happens internally, and it usually involves a disposition shift where I place myself and my perspective as superior to you and yours. The dehumanization that occurs is that I no longer view you as a beloved image bearer who is my equal, but as someone who is inferior to me. I no longer view you as a friend worth having, our lives as interdependent, and our restorative collaboration as worth my time. In short order, I begin to fabricate a book of stories about you. These stories are not based on reality. Instead, they emerge out of my creative and critical imagination. Then I tend to rehearse my preferred myths with alarming frequency, often congratulating myself for my ingenuity. At times, I even build small audiences with whom I share my fabricated stories. I'm efficient at codifying my myths and shaping them into my truth. 
In so doing, I choose to believe the worst about you, which then justifies my terrible behavior toward you. Without saying another word to you, I've duped myself into believing that I know you and commit more energy to believing and defending my fabricated stories than drawing near to you to learn about you from you. The journey that I just articulated is based on thousands of interrupted relationships that I've had the privilege to learn from and walk alongside. But it's more personal than that. It's a path that I choose far too frequently. Maybe you do too. I want to suggest this morning that one of the most radical embodiments of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this divided moment is interpersonal peacemaking. What we'll soon see is that the mending of divided relationships will image something beautiful to the watching world about who God is and what God is like. This morning, I want to explore interpersonal peacemaking within the context of pre-existing relationships that have been interrupted by political or theological difference. Then during tonight's forum, I'm, I'm going to explore interpersonal peacemaking a bit differently by focusing on bridging difference and forging uncommon friendships with those with whom we differ by faith, politic, identity, upbringing, and experiences. Now, let me offer an important note of clarification for this morning. Many of us find ourselves in interrupted relationships because violence has been done to our identities and bodies. This is real and worth careful consideration and is beyond the scope of our conversation this morning. My focus today is not on interpersonal peacemaking with someone who has enacted physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, or mental abuse against you. Instead, I'm centering pre-existing, previously valuable relationships that have been interrupted by political or theological difference. So, we find ourselves in a dangerously divided moment. Each of us is susceptible to the inertia toward interrupting relationships. Interpersonal peacemaking may be among the most radical embodiments of the gospel in today's world. So why should we care? And what should we do about it? Well, let's tend to the first question first. Why should we care about interpersonal peacemaking? Well, the simple answer is because Jesus did. Let's take a brief look at three moments in the life of Jesus in order to grasp his priority and passion for interpersonal peacemaking. First, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's this moment when Jesus reflected on the power of anger and grudge holding to interrupt relationships. Within those reflections, he said, when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your sister or brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your sister or brother and then come and offer your gift. In this brief teaching, Jesus elevated interpersonal reconciliation as a defining worship practice for those who will follow him. Now, that's all well and good, right? But we should understand that this teaching seemed to push against the cultural trend that placed ultimate priority on the worship of God. The trend was informed by Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema Yisrael that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Shema Yisrael prioritized love of God over all else. If there was an interrupted relationship, the understanding was that you'd go worship God and then you'd go tend to the work of interpersonal peacemaking. Here, 
Jesus seems to indicate that God is disinterested in our rituals of worship if we know that a sister or brother has something against us. Now pay attention to this. In this passage, Jesus is not centering our grudges against another. Instead, he's centering others' grudges against us. It's as though Jesus is saying, get over yourself. Your book of fabricated fairy tales and your supposed position of superiority and get to the work of mending divided relationships. Or put another way, Jesus may be saying that the act of interpersonal peacemaking is experienced by God as love. In other words, Jesus is inviting us to love God by mending divided relationships. We prioritize love of God when we actively participate in the work of interpersonal reconciliation. Now, this begs the question, why? Why did Jesus so emphasize interpersonal peacemaking? I think we gain some perspective in a second moment of Jesus' life. In prayerful solitude within the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus prayed for us. Yet the prayer that he prayed was neither for our safety nor for our courage. Rather, when Jesus prayed over us, he prayed for our unity, our oneness. Now, the unity that he prayed for was not an end unto itself. It was a means to a more beautiful, redemptive, restorative end. Listen to his prayer. He prayed, Father, I ask on behalf of those who will believe in me that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, that we may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In John 17, Jesus prays for our oneness because it is in our unity that the watching world will discover the truth about who God is and experience his love in tangible ways. Our oneness is sacramental. It signals a beautiful truth about God to the curious. Now, as you and I both know, unity is not uniformity. The unity that is the beloved family is diverse in every possible way. With diversity comes conflict and the potential for interrupted relationships. It's what happens when we do life together. What's supposed to distinguish the Jesus community from every other entity, though, is our undying commitment to interpersonal peacemaking with one another. In the practice of interpersonal peacemaking, we image to the watching world the reality that God, whose name is peace, is the great peacemaker who waged a decisive peace in Jesus and is moving in and through us to make that peace real in our families, in our faith communities, in our cities, and throughout our world. So, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus centered interpersonal peacemaking as an act of worship. It's how we love God. In John chapter 17, we gain an understanding of why interpersonal peacemaking matters so much. The practice reinforces our oneness, which in turn signals to the watching world that God is real, is for us, and is with us. Then, in John 21, the resurrected Jesus demonstrates how we go about the work of interpersonal peacemaking. The moment is reminiscent of an encounter between Peter and Jesus in Luke chapter 5. 
If you recall, Jesus had been in the tiny fishing village called Capernaum for a short amount of time. His renown spread quickly as everyone who encountered him seemed to have their lives set right side up. Peter's mother-in-law was actually one of those recipients of restorative grace. The encounter in Luke chapter 5 placed Jesus on the beach and then boarding Peter's fishing boat in order to create some healthy distance between he and the crowds. After teaching to the masses, Jesus' instruction shifted to a personal invitation for Peter. The invitation was for an exhausted and bewildered fisherman to head back out to the waters rather than to the rest that he desired. The master teacher told the master fisherman to go fish in the middle of the day when the fish don't bite. Peter's response was that of a disciple. Despite the invitation defying plausibility, Peter said, because you say so, I will. That encounter and what happened next changed the trajectory of Peter's life. For the next three years, he gave his life for and attempted to take the life of another in defense of Jesus. During what could become the final Passover meal they shared together, Jesus indicated to Peter that before dawn, Peter would deny his connection with Jesus three times. Calling curses upon himself, Peter rejected the possibility of this and shortly after attempted to demonstrate his fierce allegiance to Jesus through an act of lethal violence. Sure enough, by the time the rooster crowed at dawn, Peter, fearing for his own life, had vehemently denied his connection to the now-imprisoned Jesus. The next time Peter saw Jesus, he was dying on a Roman cross. With Jesus' last breath, Peter's belief that Jesus was who he said he was died, as did the hope of a restored relationship. The interrupted relationship seemed to be irredeemably so. Then, one morning as Peter was casting his nets, a beach walker offered an unconventional yet eerily familiar invitation. Throw your nets off the other side of your boat. Echoing the earlier encounter, Peter recognized at once that the beach walker was Jesus. After a shore breakfast, Jesus tended to the interrupted relationship with Peter. Three times he asked him, do you love me? Three times Peter responded convincingly of his love for Jesus. The relationship was restored. And then Jesus commissioned Peter into the work of reconciliation internally, interpersonally, and systemically. And let me pull three practices of interpersonal peacemaking out of this final encounter between Jesus and Peter and then illustrate it within an interrupted relationship in my own life. First, we discover a Jesus who sees Peter and never stops moving toward him. Jesus acknowledges that the relationship is interrupted, and rather than avoiding Peter, he gets proximate to him. Second, we discover a Jesus who gets proximate on purpose. Interrupted relationships are not going to resolve themselves. Some infrastructure is necessary. In this case, we see Jesus setting a table so that he and Peter can share some space and some food and some memories. While Jesus was the offended, he embodied radical hospitality in order to pave the way for an amended relationship. Third, we discover a Jesus who was willing to talk about what had happened. Yet the way that Jesus did it demonstrates for us that love and curiosity have to guide the way. In the way that Jesus approached the conversation, we learn something about the power of curiosity and generosity to both restore and deepen interrupted relationships. 
So three practices for interpersonal peacemaking surface, proximity, hospitality, and curiosity. And let me tell you from my experience, the practices work. My dad and I had a unique relationship. While I loved him and knew that he loved me, it became evident from an early age that I probably wasn't going to be just like him. This was a source of consternation for him as he was raised to be just like his dad. Thus, he reasoned that successful fathering, especially of his two sons, would be measured by the extent to which we were just like him. Well, it all started with my hair. From my dad's perspective, every God-fearing Midwestern Christian boy should wear a side part. I never preferred the side part. I have thick hair with two massive crowns that causes my unstyled hair to resemble a chia pet that just survived a tornado. My dad and I battled for years about my hairstyle until finally one day, late into my high school career, he suspended the battle in defeat and offered his blessing upon my pate. As I walked the pilgrimage of independence throughout my university years, my dad and I would spend some time discussing pressing theological questions I was asking. At that point in time, I was making a bit of a name for myself in big church circles and the trajectory toward expanded Christian influence seemed plausible. He was proud that I was finding my footing in my faith that in many ways resembled his preferences. When my journey took me out to the West Coast, things began to change for me and in my relationship with my dad. Because of mentors, research, experiences, and relationships, my theology began to grow more spacious. And with it, the way I practiced my faith and leveraged my influence became problematic to my pops. Whenever he would join Jackie and I in our faith community and restorative participation within the Bay Area, he would observe the fruit, but regularly wondered if it was okay that we were hanging out with who we were collaborating with. Our theological conversations lost the generosity that had once defined them. They were now more critical and corrective, and we both willingly sparred, eager to convert the other to our own understanding. As my career shifted from direct pastoral ministry to helping Christian leaders embrace their vocation as everyday peacemakers, the divide between my dad and I widened. He was always proud that I was living out my convictions, but he was deeply troubled that my work placed me on what he understood as the wrong side of many issues that were important to him. The divide widened to a dangerous degree throughout the 2016 election cycle. Our life experiences had shaped the two of us to disagree on the intersection of faith and politics. I critiqued his one-issue politics, and he critiqued my empathetic approach to issues of systemic injustice. Informed by my book of fabricated fables about him, I couldn't tolerate the knowledge of his voting preference and urged him to break rank from his lifelong loyalties. Informed by the pain of feeling like he'd failed as a father, he struggled to metabolize my critiques and fought to rescue me from perilous theological and political wanderings that he believed me to be on. And then something shifted. He took me out for dinner and over his cherished meal of steak and shrimp, he said this, he said, Jer, throughout this election cycle, I've felt intellectually bullied by you and I've reacted poorly to it. I want you to know that I love you. That's the most important thing. And then he asked, can we disagree and still build a flourishing friendship? Proximity, hospitality, 
and curiosity. One year after that conversation, my dad was diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was an eight month journey and I was able to spend seven of those weeks in Minnesota by his side. In that time, we shared space and food and memories. We wondered together about the afterlife and whether or not my younger sons would remember him. We confessed and forgave each other for past pain that we had caused one another. We took pictures together, me wearing his hairstyle and him wearing mine. On the morning that would become my last moments with him, we found ourselves sitting side by side watching the snowfall. After an hour of silence in which we simply enjoyed being in one another's presence, my dad looked over at me and he asked one final question. He said, Jer, is there anything left unsaid in our relationship? Because of the work of interpersonal peacemaking, marked by proximity, hospitality, and curiosity that we had committed to over the past two years, I could answer with confidence, no, there's nothing. It's all good. He smiled and then he said, then can we just continue to enjoy one another in the silence? Friends, we find ourselves in a dangerously divided moment. Each of us is susceptible to the inertia toward interrupting relationships. Interpersonal peacemaking may be among the most radical embodiments of the gospel in today's world. For it images to the watching world that God is real, is for us, and is with us. And that's God's word for us this morning. Antioch may... The Spirit grant us the courage to identify and then begin to tend to the interrupted relationships in our lives.